The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Up next on The Exchange, a conversation with EY's global managing partner, Andy Baldwin. Baldwin is in the middle of a plan to break up the business into two separate entities, audit and consulting. He's keen to explain why separating these businesses makes good sense and why his rivals, PwC, Deloitte and KPMG, are likely to follow suit. Welcome back to The Exchange, a weekly conversation with business leaders from around the world produced by Reuters Breaking Views, the financial commentary arm of Reuters. I'm your host, Amy Donlan, coming to you from London. This week, I headed over to EY's bustling London headquarters and talked to Baldwin about the planned breakup of a sprawling accounting giant that requires the sign-up of partners in over 70 countries. Since the split was announced last year, Baldwin has been hosting roadshows with partners and meeting regulators from around the world, trying to convince them all that the split will actually make two more powerful businesses that can service clients better and be less prone to scandal. But is Audit a loser in the breakup scenario? And why haven't his rivals announced similar plans? And most importantly, what happens if the plan fails? Stay tuned to find out. So, Andy, you are very welcome to The Exchange. Great. Great to be here. Yes. And we're sitting in your London offices, uh, which are bustling on a Monday morning. (laughs) Um, And plenty of stuff going on behind the scenes as well. And one of the big reasons we we wanted to talk to you is there's obviously an awful lot going on with professional services in general. But your specific company... Um, there's quite some significant surgery being planned. And, uh, <laughs> Andy, I wondered if you might be able to tell me how, how are things going with your, your plan to split off the yeah. audit and consultant? <clears throat> well, hopefully, hopefully it won't be surgery as such. Uh, but, yeah, no, look, we've obviously we've announced um, that we're sort of looking at the operational separation of our, of our uh, organization into really two uh, what we believe will be even more successful, distinct uh, businesses, uh, obviously our, our business built around assurance, uh, which will be uh, a multidisciplinary assurance business, probably 20, 21 billion overall. And effectively, the bulk of our advisory or consulting strategy transactions and tax business, which will be obviously part of a new business called, uh, called Nuco. So we're sort of working through the detail of that. And um, preparing for uh, hopefully partner votes. Obviously, partners are our shareholders, so our shareholders will be voting on this uh, deal. Hopefully, uh, in Q1 at some point in uh, FY23. But what I, I should stress is, you know, obviously, we went into this process um, from a position of uh, incredible strength, coming off probably our best ever year last year, both both financially, but also in many of the things that we measure around our contribution, impact on society, recruitment, hiring, promotions. Uh, last year was just phenomenal, phenomenal year. Um, and so we felt it was a good time to sort of explore future options, if you like. And it's interesting that, I suppose, that notion that you would have this incredible year and be doing so well and you would decide, oh, we need change now. And I'm just sort of curious about that. What's your sort of elevator pitch to somebody who's looking at your business going, you know, remuneration, everything is going fantastically well for your business. Why, you know, sure. why bro- break it if it's, if it's not broken? Yeah, look, I've been on the board for the firm for 10 years. And this is the third time personally I've looked at this with the board. Mm-hmm. So it's not the first time. It's the, actually the third time. 
And in the two previous occasions where we decided we evaluated it, but we put it, if you like, back on the shelf, it, it was a number of factors. One, the regulatory environment we still felt was favorable to our existing business model operation. And the level of capital was that we needed, we could still source and fund from our current, if you like, um, uh, available capital sources. I think what was different this time is that regulatory landscape, that regulatory environment has shifted. Um, Clearly, we're sitting here in the United Kingdom. Operational separation in the United Kingdom um, requires us to run two quite distinct separate businesses. That involves additional costs for doing so. Another one of our major regulators in the Netherlands, the AFM, has been encouraging us to look at even greater separation of our of our operating on our on our on our business, and then more recently we've certainly seen a, a shift in the the tonality, if you like, of the U.S. regulated PCOB and the SEC, and so when you sort of look at that regulatory shift and I guess the the increasing challenges independence rules create for the business, which have certainly I think tightened in the last ten years. And the fact that we need more capital, professional services, you know, as an industry is becoming more and more dependent on data and technology to drive the transformation for our clients, but also the transformation for ourselves. That data and technology is coming with an ever-increasing capital price, if you like, an investment price. And obviously, professional service companies, we're privately owned. We're privately owned by the partners who are the shareholders. And because of that, we can't access the capital markets as easily as a corporate could to fund some of these investments. So it's really a, a number of those things came together. Like any good business, we always look at the environment and the marketplace. But I would say is that regulatory landscape that was turning and we felt was more in favor of a transaction such as this. And secondly, our own need for additional capital to support the growth and the transformation of the business meant that it was an appropriate time to sort of dust down the work we did before and evaluate it. And this time we concluded there was a case for putting this to the shareholders, our partners, to actually uh, vote on it. And so there's, there's quite a lot there, obviously. I mean, the regulatory landscape, I think, is quite interesting because, as you say, what I think is interesting about the whole idea of the regulators sort of wanting these two distinct businesses, audit and consulting, they haven't forced that, though, right? And if anything, what I think what you've seen is in some cases, you have language that's very strong saying, oh, you know, these businesses need to be separate and we need audit quality to be much higher because we've had all these issues with audit. Uh, but then when it comes down to it, when they actually make the recommendations, they fall short of actually forcing that breakup. And I'm sort of curious because if you look at the other three, um, you know, obviously KPMG mm-hmm. and, and PwC, they are not doing this yet. Are you sort of reading the tea leaves and saying, we're going to get in ahead of everybody else? We think this is actually the way the industry is going. Yeah, look, I, I think, you know, being in the profession 25 years, um, I never thought this was inevitable. I now feel it is inevitable. And whether it it's not this generation of partners and leaders in our firm who go through with this transaction, no doubt in my mind the next generation of leaders and partners will have to confront this at some point. And so onto that point of the regulatory piece, I think the regulators are in different places, um, but I think there's a general convergence of them. Some of them are leading this more, the UK, the, uh, the AFM. Uh, we've definitely seen a shift in attitude of the, of the US regulator. 
for sure not going as far as saying we'd like you to you know separate the businesses but the the tightening up of a lot of the regulations that we operate within particularly the independence rules and obviously obviously in Europe we have the Barnier reforms now which we've been living with for 12 13 years around mandatory firm rotation <clears throat> all of these things add to if you like from a, from a business point of view additional costs and constraints within which we operate under and obviously, there are synergies of our current model. Otherwise, we wouldn't have been like this for the last 100 years. I think the changes in the regulatory landscape, the points around capital, the points around clients wanting more choice, I think is adding to the pressures to actually look at this. And we've concluded it is inevitable. It will happen at some point. If it doesn't happen this time, we think it will happen you know, within the gener- within the gen- a generation of partners, so within fifteen twenty years, I think it's definitely inevitable it will happen, if not if not sooner. And if you're the first mover, do you think you get an advantage out of that? If you were to wait and see what it would be like if KPMG did it first, do you think that there is? I think the capital element. I'm really interested to hear more about that sort of view about your sort of access to capital. If you were the first one to sort of break up. Does that give you the first dibs on on that sort of excess capital that you're yeah, looking for? Yeah, well, I, I think we, we do believe there's a first mover advantage. And actually, interestingly, we think the first mover advantage really particularly favors the audit business or the assurance business because obviously um, in terms of the clients we can work with, we, we invariably have to look at a number of constraints, a number of conflicts that we have with clients. And obviously, if we go ahead with the transactions proposed, we will actually be able to propose for and bid on any part of the marketplace and actually we'll be able to give far more choice, if you like, to uh, to our clients. So we certainly believe that being first will give us you know, a first move advantage both on the assurance business and obviously on the other part of the business, the consulting strategy and transactions and the, and the, and the tax business by moving forward. You know, Yes, we'll be able to obviously serve parts of the market that we're currently restricted from servicing. Um, that we've estimated, you know, and that's probably 25, 30% of the marketplace that at the moment we can't actually, we can't actually serve. One of the other areas for us um, is around our uh, technology alliance partners. You know, we, uh, we audit nine out of the top 10 technology companies in the United States, for example. We're not able to have alliances. We're not able to even buy services from some of those companies um, this will open up a significant opportunity for that consulting advisory business to work with a, a wider range of technology and alliance partners. So all of those things come with being first and being able to, to move, uh, move first. But obviously as, as a business, you know, we're a firmly believer of keeping things in our own destiny. And actually when you're having to respond and react to something, you invariably are playing catch-up. Um, if you look at the last major shift in the profession, which happened 20, 25 years ago, um, I was a, a newly promoted partner when that happened. Um, we were actually the first one to sell our consulting business um, back in 2000. Most people probably won't remember that, but we were the first firm to move in 2000. And then um, KPMG and Pricewaterhouse then followed with their, with their transactions. So uh, we believe being first here, will give us an advantage. And we also believe that the competition at some point in time will also have to respond. But I think that is such an interesting point to make, is that 
this has happened before, this, this sort of breakup of these businesses. And actually, what ultimately happened is consulting and audit came back together. And I'm just curious, what makes this different? As in, why, why does it make sense now, when you've done it before, realize the businesses were, were better together? I assume that was the thinking of, of management at the time when these things did come back together. What makes everything so, so different now? I think what's different now is a couple of things. One, I think the regulatory environment is now very is different to what it was back in 2000. So we didn't have mandatory firm rotation, um, for example. So you did have a, a big collapse of... of well, no, we had Enron, yeah. obviously, yeah. And, and Enron, that, if you look at the collapse of, uh, with Enron and obviously the, implica- the impact that had on, Dan and, on Anderson's, that actually led to the creation of the SOX reporting environment in the United States. So there was a significant consequence as a result of that um, that collapse. But interestingly, you know, the, the mandatory firm rotation law really, there's always some countries who had it, but that really emanated in Europe. You know, and, and if you look at the size, you know, Europe's the single biggest trade block in the world. To have mandatory firm rotation in the single biggest trade block in the world, which is a significant marketplace for professional services, that is a substantial shift comparison to 2000. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's probably one of the, the major ones. Secondly, I think independence rules have shifted significantly globally across all the regulators, I think, since 2000. And the third one, I, I think, which is, again, different to 2000, the importance of data and technology to professional services, the level of capital and investment that is required, is frankly just of an order of magnitude different to what it was in 2000. Mm. So if you look at our firm, we will spend um, on an, you know, t- over $2 billion a year on our data and our technology infrastructure just for our own business. Mm. That's probably about a billion dollars, $900 million on our, um, our what we call our client technology, which are the technology assets that our clients either consume or we use to support the, the services. Um, you know, we've got two technology platforms. One of our global tax platform, we're investing $700 million. It's our single biggest technology investment. We've got our new audit platform, Neon. We're developing probably $600 million. These level of this That level of investment, I mean, this is an order of magnitude above what we used to invest in our technology assets back in, in 2000. So I think that for me, that's, if you like, to the fair question, what is different? Um, I think that's what's different. I think those factors, regulatory environment, anti-fermentation, change of independence, the need for data and technology capital investment is of an order of magnitude, which I think is what's driving it this time. And interestingly, I don't think the profession will rebuild back in the same way um, after the transaction, assuming we move we move forward. Okay. You know, whereas I think back in, in 2000, you know, it, largely the business was built back what was sold or was ultimately built back over a 15-year period. Mm. I think one of the things that when I first looked at this breakup plan, because I think it was last May, I thought that audit seemed to be sort of the forgotten business in this in some ways. And then you talk about, obviously, you know, you audit nine of the t- top 10 technology companies in America. Um, and that does mm-hmm. stop you then from selling them consulting businesses or, you know, cross-selling because you're kind of being discouraged from doing that. And then there's also the kind of element of, I guess, when you're recruiting people into EY, you're recruiting people, young graduates saying to them, come to this big business at the moment 
that. You can do audit, you can do consulting. I mean, some of the big CFOs in the world have come from the big four, but you know, it's quite a career you're setting sure. up for them. But if you hive off the audit business and that is no longer, there is no longer that, yeah. that opportunity, does that mean that the audit becomes less... Less know, attractive. Less attractive and your peers become more attractive as yeah. your rivals, I should say. No, it's a, it's a great question. So I think if you just take a couple of steps through that. So the first thing is, and this is an interesting comparison to look at EY versus the other big three firms. We, we have had a very successful assurance audit strategy as a business for the last 10 or 15 years. If you look at the firms who benefited most from mandatory firm rotation, actually EY is one of the biggest, if not the biggest beneficiary. If you look at the Forbes 2000, which is the top audit clients in the world, um, the last data I saw, I think we are plus 32 uh, in, terms of, in terms of wins. So the first thing is we have been incredibly successful at winning new audit audit share our assurance business um, is the still still the single biggest part of our business uh, it's interesting when you look at some of our competitors their relative size of their assurance business is much much smaller than ours the growth of their assurance business has not been as successful as ours and their audit share over the last few years has actually gone down whereas ours has gone up so the first thing is like we have put assurance front and center of our strategy be blunt, I'm not sure some of our competitors have had assurance front and center of their strategy in the same way we have. So then when we start to look at going into this transaction, one of the things we've been you know, very, very mindful of is we want our assurance business to be as successful in the future as it has been over the last 10 years. And so when we started to look at that business, the first thing is it's not an audit business. It's actually, it continues to be a multidisciplinary business. So if you look at that 21 billion or plus of revenue, probably 180,000 plus people, actually the audit part of it will only be around um, 11 billion, 12 billion. It'll have a large, effectively consulting business, but it'll be a consulting business dominated more by advice rather than technology and managed services. That'll be about a 5 billion plus business, um, which will put it in the top 20 consulting business in the world still. Plus, it'll have a um, three and a half billion tax business, which I think puts it in number five or six of the global tax businesses uh, in the world. <clears throat> so the business, while it, it will be smaller, inevitably, because we're doing the separation, actually, it is a multidisciplinary business, which has incredible strength in finance, in CFO, in sustainability, in tax it will still obviously continue to work in the transaction space for our Channel One clients and also our non-audit clients. So all the things that, if you like, makes the business attractive today for people because that means they can start an audit but then move into transactions or move into consulting remains. And actually, I would argue it'll be easier for people to do that and be able to move between different parts of the business because the business will be more agile, be more focused. Inevitably, when you get to a business of our size, which is, we're on track to be a $50 billion business with 380,000 employees. Sometimes when you get that large, it's harder to be agile and it's harder to give people some of the career moves and the career flexibility, despite the best in, you know intentions. Mm. You just can't sometimes deliver on some of that. So the new business... You know, we've, we've des we're designing in a way that we want it to be even more successful in the future as that compared to has been in the last 10 years. 
And I suppose this is not without complication. <laughs> you have a, <laughs> yeah. a sprawling global business, as you said. You need approval from partners, I think past partners as well, right? They, they have some say in this as well. I wondered if you could talk me through, I suppose, what, has, what is the most complicated element of this? Like, in order to get this through, in order to get this done, what things have you had to iron out? What stumbling blocks have you sort of met that you maybe didn't expect or did expect and are sure. proving? No. Um, yeah, so look, it, it, is a, it is a complex transaction, um, probably the most complex transaction I think has ever been attempted in professional services, to be candid. Um, but we did that for a reason because you, know, you, you asked before about some of the previous sales in the profession. Um, they were trade sales. So you sold a relatively simple part, small part of the business, and you sold that to someone who integrated it. We've concluded that approach is not in the best interests of our stakeholders, our shareholders, or our people. So hence why we're going down the creation of the merger of two businesses. By that nature, it's more complex. Um, just to, to do a demerger, because obviously then we'll, one will be a public company, one will continue as a partnership. So that is a much more complex um, transaction. Um, so, you know, also the breadth and the scope. If you look at what happened before in the profession back in 2000, it was far fewer countries. Actually, this is a much larger number of countries. You know, we're looking at over 80, probably 70, 80 countries will be in the scope of uh, this deal. That's more complex. So obviously we're needing to engage with country leadership in a much larger number of, uh, number of countries. Um, we've clearly got to prepare for a partner uh, vote. This is not the first time we've had partner votes. Um, in my career as a partner, I've voted twice on major you know, corporate activities. So we, we have done them before, but we don't do it very often. So getting organized and getting ready for you know, the partner vote, which means doing partner roadshows, effectively, if you, if you imagine, we have to prepare a prospectus in the same way we would do for, any company would do for its shareholders. We have to do the same. Mm. You know, so we have to prepare what we're calling a partner information document. Um, that is effectively a prospectus that will that will have a chapter for each of the 78 countries. So there's a global piece of it, and then there's a country piece of it. That takes time to work through. We're also um, working on a effectively a sale agreement, like any corporate ac activity. So if you think about that, that sale agreement has to be adapted for... 78 countries because they're all selling something different there's some common elements to it but obviously each one has to do that so i think there's the, the mechanics of doing the deal are incredibly complicated um the good news is we do this for a living we're one of the we're the leading global transaction advisor in the world um we've nine out of the top 10 largest spins in the united states for example in the last six months we're advising on all nine out of the nine out of the ten trying to find out what happened to the one that we're not uh, advising on. Um, but we're advising on nine out of the ten. So we've got a lot of expertise on that, but it is very, it is very complex. Um, and in terms of clearly we also need to talk to the regulators in each and every one of those countries as well, which we have been, have been doing. What I would say so far from the regulatory piece, the regulators are asking the questions you would expect them to ask. So we're really focused on, help us understand how this will help audit quality and how this will, if you like, um, continue to ensure clients have choice, particularly in the regulated parts of our business, 
And as I said earlier, we feel very confident about that. We feel very good about this will set up two very uh, successful businesses. And so, you know, thinking through, obviously, the partner who are our shareholders, we're obviously engaging with our people as well to sort of sort of share and outline why you know, they should continue to invest their careers in both these two businesses, um, you know, moving forward and how both of them will be able to create more promotion, more jobs, more more prospects, and they should be businesses they, they want to continue to um, work for. And then we want to also obviously work through with the regulators to make sure uh, the regulators are comfortable. Clearly, if the regulators were not comfortable with this transaction, we wouldn't proceed with it. And, well, and can one of them scupper it? Can one regulator block this, as in one country regulator, can they say, we don't like this, and does that mean the deal doesn't go through? Or yeah, yeah, look, I, I think you could, as you would imagine, the largest regulators in the biggest countries have a disproportionate influence on a network mm-hmm. like, such as ours. And you can probably guess which those, you know, the, the US regulator, for example, has an incredibly important voice in this. So does the UK regulator, so does the Dutch regulator. So it's important that the regulators are, are comfortable as I said, no matter what I mentioned earlier, the direction of travel of the regulatory environment and the regulatory landscape, we think this is in the best interest of both our stakeholders, our regulators, and our clients, as well as obviously our shareholders and our people. So we wouldn't have embarked on this if we didn't think it was in the right long-term uh, interest. As I said, the regulators are moving towards this at different speeds, different paces. Some of them may well stop short of wanting a full separation but if you look at say what the UK have done with OPSEC operational separation in the UK it's literally just one step away from an operational separation so we believe the regulators ultimately will be um, comfortable with what we are proposing but we're obviously having active dialogues with them so you know there's a number of those factors that are are, are complex um, you referenced you know retired uh, retired um, retired partners. And clearly, some of those retired partners are debtors, i.e. we have pension obligations. And so, understandably, a number of them have raised questions on, you know, are their pensions secure? And we've been able to give them a level of comfort which says, look, if we proceed with this transaction, the pension arrangements we have in some of our member firms, not all of them because we don't offer it, it's a global pension down at the country level, those pensions will be even more secure in the future than they are today. And we've made that as a, you know, a prerequisite that we will put additional support and funding into those pensions, not just for the partners, but obviously for our staff. We, have, you know, we, we provide staff pensions and partner pensions. Partner pensions in a limited number of countries. We've moved away from partner pensions in many countries, like the United Kingdom, for example. The partners do not have a pension. They're, they're expected to arrange that on their own, you know, on their own recognizance. But we do have a, uh, a staff pension, and so we've been very focused on this transaction will benefit where appropriate retired partners who have who are debtors, and also it will benefit staff pension schemes as well. And what about current staff? What about current partners? <coughs> what is your sense? I mean, have you started these roadshows? What's the what are the big questions you're getting from from the partners? Yeah, look, I, I think that the partners are asking the questions, and our people are asking the questions you would expect them to ask. So. They want to understand, will, you know, will these, how, will, how will these businesses be successful in the future? You know, they're part of a, you know, uh, probably the fastest growing professional services firm out of the big four for the last seven or eight years. So they know the current business is very successful. So they want to understand how will these two businesses in the future 
be successful. <clears throat> so we spent a lot of time talking about you know the the growth and the growth rates, the growth potential of these businesses. Um, you know, interestingly, we we've done a three year plan for both separate businesses. Mm -hmm. uh, we started to share some of that with our our partners and our and our staff. And one of the messages, which is great, we've been able to give them is both businesses are already growing at the rate we thought they could grow post-separation, which means that we think they can grow at even an even faster rate. Why is growth important? Because growth creates more opportunities, more jobs, more promotions, whether that's partner roles or, 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 or other roles. So that's one thing. So they want to understand, you know, how that will, um, you know, how both businesses will continue to be successful. Clearly, the partners or the staff as part of the assurance business want to understand some of the questions you asked earlier, which is help me understand how this business will continue to be multidisciplinary. It'll continue to be market leading. It'll continue to attract, you know, large numbers of graduates, interns, but also lateral hires. You know, at the moment, the business it will probably hire close to 200,000 people <coughs> this year um, into the business. We, we think that will likely increase as the two businesses are created because the advantage of a demerger is it doesn't tend to lose jobs, it tends to create jobs. Uh, and that's obviously also a question people have had is, you know, is this going to result in redundancies? And we've been able to give them comfort and say, no, it won't. If anything, we're going to create even more jobs, not just on the client service side, but obviously we have a, you know, a large number of our people, 60,000, 70,000 work in our enabling functions. We call it, we call it central business services. Yeah, we're going to have to create two of everything, you know, two technology teams, two HR teams, two talent teams, uh, two brand and communication teams. Um, so that's likely to result in more jobs, again, um, not less. So they're, they're the, the, the questions people have been asking. And then obviously people want to know, you know when will they vote and when, and when would you know, the transaction be effective from. Um, what we've said is our plan at the moment is we will you know, aim to vote um, end of quarter one next year probably. And then we want to be ready, you know, to do the separation at some point in 2023. Um, but obviously, it depends on the market. You know, we, we're, we're sort of our job at, as leaders and managers is to get the business ready. And then we have to then be guided by what's happening in the marketplace and what our advisors tell us. And I mean, if once this, if hopefully, and from your perspective, this is this results in a split. We've seen private equity show quite a lot of interest in professional services. Yep. Do you kind of see a situation where this could lead on to like another deal, like as in that this would this entity that is that is separated out would be a target in some way of a purchase by another company? Um, no, and that's a great question. Some of our partners have asked, um, you know, the, the same question, and what we said is, look, the reason we are architecting. The transaction in this way is that the the new business, the new co business, if you like, that will be a publicly owned and publicly traded business, will have some very unique attributes that are not available to any public shareholder in any other investment. So, for example, it'll be a world's top five strategy firm. It'll be the world's top th top five tax business, probably number three. Um, from a tax point of view, it'll be the world's leading transaction advisor. And yes, it'll also have a very large-scale technology consulting capability. So that assembly of capabilities um, we think is unique um, and we think will be very attractive to 
um, investors, but also that shape also gives it scale. So you know we th- you know this will be a twenty five billion plus business in terms of revenue on day one, probably more than that given our current growth performance. And so when you start to think that you look at the market cap, that's probably a hundred billion market cap. If you start to think about companies who could buy it, you very rapidly there aren't many companies who could afford to buy a hundred billion plus you know uh, multidisciplinary consulting business. Secondly, the strategy, the reason we're going down this road to to basically create a public company um, is we think that's in the best interest and will unlock the greatest growth um, potential. Um, we considered a trade sale, if you like, uh, and ruled out a trade sale. We also considered we considered and ruled out a, a potential combination with another, you know, organization and institution. We think to preserve the culture. So if you like, a number of us learned the lessons of what happened last time when we sold the businesses back in 2000. We think what we're proposing is the right balance of creates the most value, it's in the best interest of our stakeholders, regulators, our people, and our shareholders, but also gives the business the best chance for continued growth and success. Um, you know, how we structure the transaction, um, you know, we're still working, working that through whether it's a mixture of public debt or public, sorry, public uh, equity or private equity, we will sort of work that through nearer the time. We clearly have a view and a preference um, on that from, from our bankers, um, but we'll, we'll explore um, you know, other options nearer the time. But categorically, there's no intention of um, you know, doing this and then suddenly doing a series of disposals, if you like, to sort of create more value. Um, our view is the perimeter, as we're calling it, the shape of the business for the new business that will be public, a company. We've, we're, we've been very thoughtful about that shape um, and that shape has value and integration and synergy benefits across the portfolio of the businesses that will form part of that. We don't intend to go through this separation and then suddenly sell off <coughs> one or more of the parts of the business. Okay. Um, I mean, I guess one of the things I'm kind of curious about is audit as well has been in the news for quite a lot of reasons. Carillion, there was, there seems to be every one of your rivals, including yourselves, have been involved in some situation that yes. audit was under scrutiny. Is one of the questions that regulators, when you were talking about how is this going to improve audit quality, like what are your thoughts on that? How do you, how do you ensure there aren't more of these situations where you, where the audit company doesn't seem to see what, in some cases, hedge funds can see the weakness in a company or, you know, a way in which a company is doing something it shouldn't be doing, um, long before the audit company sort of gets gets wind of it. Yeah. So look, I, you know, we, I think we have over you know 100, 150,000. Um, Audit, audit clients, you know, frauds come along and obviously many of the frauds that happen uh, never get reported because <coughs> we identify them or our, you know, peer competitors, we identify the frauds, we report them to audit committees, management actions taken and in many cases they, they, never, they never get reported. What does get reported is obviously those situations, those cases where um, the audit firm is unable to identify or unable to spot that fraud. Um, you, every situation is regrettable. 
Um, every situation has lessons, you know, to be learned. Clearly, um, you mentioned a couple of cases there that weren't ours, but we obviously have our own our own list. Um, and every one of those we go through, and we 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 sort of we, the question we always ask is: Is it systemic? Is there something fundamental around our approach, our methodology, our tools that have led to this situation? Um, and if there is, then we clearly need to change that. If there's not, if it's all about a specific case, we've got to make sure we learn the lessons from that case. We've had a couple of very regrettable situations in the last couple of years. We've made a lot of changes as a result of that in new technology, new training, new approaches, new ways of new ways of uh, new ways of working ar- around that. And I think that's what the regulators want to see and hear. I think they, you know, they accept that the nature of auditing means there will be cases sometimes with the best will in the world where teams miss them. Mm. Um, miss those um, those situations. The important thing is that you, you you learn and take the lessons from that. And so, in a lot of the conversations, you know, we're having now, you know, the regulators are asking, rightly, what what's the benefits of of this transaction to audit specifically, and what we're able to show is one, it is around a greater level of focus on that audit business because the audit business is an increasingly large part of the overall if you like new business going forward um, it's not you know the firm is not an audit only firm but it's a big part of that which means the business will get more focus that means the focus around audit and audit quality will be greater like any business when you are making investments and you've got a very large very distributed business you have to make investment choices across that landscape. Obviously, again, for the business moving forward, um, it'll have a more focused investment strategy around those parts of the business that are far more, you know, I think, adjacent to the audit. So, you know, the investments we'll be making in sustainability are very beneficial to the audit practice. The investments we're making in our CFO agenda, if you like, again, are very beneficial. The investments we're making in the tax technology are also very beneficial to the audit. So the, the, the driver will really be around greater focus. The investment capital that is available will be more focused on and around those uh, audit activities, but also those practices that are very adjacent to the, uh, to the audit business. And then we'll continue to invest as we have, to, have been in our, if you like, our processes and activities that are related to promoting and supporting order quality. So we've just done a major investment in our professional practice group, which effectively oversees professional standards in the firm. We have the investment in our new Neon platform, which builds on our existing Canvas platform, which is a very successful digital platform for audit, common platform across the world. So we'll continue to invest in the next generation uh, of that, we're also investing in new technologies around AI, specifically around fraud. On top of that, so I, I think really those that's where it all, I think comes together around. Um, it's more focus. The investment we have will be more dedicated to focus on the audit business, but also on the adjacencies to the audit piece. Mm. Because you you put together such a compelling case, I think, for why this is necessary, why it's inevitable, almost the way the industry is going. But on the day we're meeting, there's a story about PwC sort of targeting EY partners, right, to, to recruit them and say, obviously, that, you know, there's instability in EY because of this breakup and therefore you should come and work at PwC. 
I would imagine the argument is that DWC is not going to do this this sort of this sort of breakup. Um, and what I'm sort of curious about is having put together this view for the future. Yeah. What if it doesn't work? What if your partners reject this plan? What if regulators step in and say no? What what do you imagine your plan will be then? What what happens if this doesn't work? Um, that's a great question. So so look, we. we we obviously wouldn't have embarked on this if we didn't think it was in the best interest of the partners who are our shareholders, the regulators, our people, and our clients. Um, and we remain, you know, frankly, of, of that view. Um, we'll put this to the partner vote. In the event that, um, you know, the partners um, rejected it, we then want to understand, or the regulators rejected it, we then want to understand what's the driver for that, you know, um, is it um, the scope of the business that we're looking to sell or separate? Um, if that's the case, we can revisit potentially the perimeter, if you like, or the shape of of, uh, of that of that business. If it's around, people are concerned over you know the that market, the timing of that. Um, you know, if we continue to see very challenging market environment. Then, to be candid, we'll just what you know. Some of this may be a timing point. We'll just wait until the market is right for this particular type of um, you know, transa- transaction. That's you know, one of the concerns the partners are expressing is obviously the volatility of the market. And that's why we're saying, look, the focus is we think this is the right strategic move. Um, our initial sort of discussions with the partners and the roadshows, I think they agree with the strategic rationale. They clearly have a lot of questions that you would imagine on the detail, but they agree with strategic rationale. But it may come down to a timing point, which means that you know our plan at the moment is we'll continue to move towards what we're calling soft separation next year. So we'll continue, we'll start to run these two businesses separately, albeit they'll still be part of the overall single enterprise of, of, uh, of obviously EY. <clears throat> and then we'll just then be ready um, for when the market does improve. So if it's a timing point, um, then we'll wait. And we have the ability to wait until the market improves. So you don't uh, take it as like a done deal. If the partners say no, you'll simply regroup, rethink, and put it to them again. Well, I, I think what I'd say is the fundamental drivers behind why we've considered this transaction don't change. They are what they are. The regulatory environment is moving in a certain direction. The capital, you know, all the things I mentioned, they don't go away. Um, and so, ultimately, if the partners didn't vote for the deal, we would just clearly need to think about how would we address those those other issues. I think in the reality, in the way we're engaging uh, with our partners, and we've you know we've got tools now gauging sentiment. We're having roadshows. We're having town hall meetings. Partners are you know it's one of the one of the joys of working in a partnership compared to a corporate, your partners are never slow to tell you what they think, in my experience. And so we're getting a lot of feedback from the partners now, which means we're starting to shape aspects of the transaction real time because we're getting the feedback now because we're engaging on a much more detailed basis. So I think what is put together and proposed you know, to the partners, you know, we believe will be compelling and the partners will vote for it. I, I think the most likely scenario to what you alluded to around a delay would probably be market conditions. 
and on that basis we'll just wait until the market conditions are right. Um, with the regulator, which is a, an incredibly important part of this, um, the initial conversation with the regulators are positive, at worst neutral. We've not come across any regulators yet who are saying we don't want you to do this. Now, in fairness, as we put more information on the on the scope of the deal to them, I'm sure they'll have more and more questions on that. But as I said, we've been very thoughtful on the shape of the assurance or the EY business going forward. You know, it is a multi it is a large multidisciplinary business with a lot of capabilities which are very adjacent and complementary to the audit, but it's not an audit-only firm. Mm. And I think when we've gone through that, and I've been involved in some of those conversations personally with the regulators, I think they are pleasantly surprised on the breadth and the scope of what we're envisaging as part of the business. I think some of them were worried that it would be an audit-only business, and we were very clear that we don't think that's in the best interests of our clients, and nor is in the best interests of the partners who will be part of the EY business going forward to have a very narrowly focused, narrowly focused um, business. Um, you know, in terms of the, you know, the competitors and the competitor stories, I, I did, I did read that one with some amusement this morning. Look, um, we got thirteen thousand partners. I top of my top of my head, I think about four thousand of them have joined us as direct admit partners in the last eight years. You know, we hire more direct admit partners, I suspect, than any of the other big three firms. Um, we're also on track to do our 200th acquisition, um, probably in about a month's time. Um, again, we do more acquisitions than any other firm. So we have a track record of acquiring talent, bringing in, and more importantly, integrating them and those people wanting to stay. Um, I'm not worried about EY partners jumping ship and going to PwC or Deloitte or KPMG at this stage. Now, what I would admit is if we go forward and we do the transaction, we then need to develop a very compelling vision of the future for this new business to all of our partners and staff to make them want to stay and continue to invest their careers for the next 5, 10, 15 years. Fully get that's a... That's a management challenge for the management team who gets appointed for the new business. But uh, as things stand at the moment, um, retention of our existing partners is, is, is the least worry I have at the moment. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, very, very interesting, Andy, and thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. Today. Great. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Oliver Tashlich in London. Subscribe to The Exchange and our sister podcast, The Views Room, on Acast, Megaphone, or wherever you like to listen. Check out our latest views on these stories and many others at breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews.